thank you for his time of preparation this week. Speak through him, Lord. Your servants long to hear. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, this is awkward. <laughs> I, I say that only because it's kind of like dating a girl for 17 and a half years and then going out with somebody else. <laughs> uh, I've always been on the other side of the altar when I've been at St. Paul's in Somerville. Um, but I just want to tell you a little bit about who we are and where we're going. Um, the summer of 2015 will be forever known by the Jeffords family as the summer of stress. The summer of stress began, uh, I think, on June the 5th, when my son Christian was graduating. We had not even folded up the cap and the gown before I was on the phone to Britt Reagan, your senior warden, telling him that after 17 and a half years, we were leaving our beloved uh, household, beloved church in Conway, South Carolina, and coming to be with you guys. What a difficult calling. From that point on, the summer just kept on rolling and kept uh, picking up steam. Davis, my middle son, went on a mission trip to Haiti. Soon after that, Hayden, my youngest, went with Davis to a mission trip in Atlanta. Soon after that, I was the head spiritual advisor at Curcio with Father John on the team. Uh, it's been an incredible summer. Immediately after that, we're saying our goodbyes and tears and boxing stuff up, me and my wife Leslie, and coming to be with you guys. It's been a summer of stress. I recently read that there's a top 40 out there of the stressors that a human being goes through in life. This summer, I think that we've hit 45 of the top 40. <laughs> Narrowly uh, escaping death and divorce. Um, <laughs> thanks be to God. <laughs> but, but among the top 40 is vacation time, oddly enough. And uh, you know that that's the one thing that God has spared the Jeffords family from having to endure vacation time. <laughs> You know, thanks be to God, praise the Lord, hallelujah, the horror of time off spent with those you love. I don't know how that made the top 40, but it did. Change of job, mortgage, change of work-related responsibilities, child leaving home, living conditions changing, residence, change of church, assuming extra debt, change of social environment, we hit them all. But we are so glad to be with you. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. On September 24th, I will be instituted as your new rector, and I and my family will join you in ministry. Uh, I don't know if it's 21, 22, or 23rd rector. And no one seems to know. I got all three responses this week. But what I do know is I stand on the back of many faithful men that have helped to build the congregation, the body of Christ here in Somerville. And I say that it's not I who stand, but the Jeffords family that stands with me. Truth is that if I didn't have a faithful Christian wife and three courageous, faithfully committed Christian children, then I could not stand before you. So my first thanks is to my wife, Leslie, and I'll embarrass her and ask her to stand. And Christian, my oldest, and Davis, my middle, and Hayden, my youngest. Thank you, guys. You may be seated. Uh, I thank my family. 
And my second thanks this morning is to you, my larger parish family. It's good to be with you finally. St. Paul is clear in Romans 8, and you'll see that on the board, that when we become Christians, we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, given the uh, responsibility and the great graceful gift of being able to call, be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. Paul puts it like this, For when you became a Christian, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, so that we can cry out as the family of God, Abba, Daddy, we love you together as the family of God. So we're no longer slaves, but we're children, blood brothers and blood sisters in Christ. And I see you as that right now. On several occasions, including just a few minutes ago, you've texted me, emailed me, and somebody came up to me before the service and said, don't worry, don't be stressed, we love you, we love the Jeffords, you're our family now. I can't tell you how much that meant to me and my family to hear those words. Deep in our bones, we feel like we've been called to be here by God with you. I hope you feel the same. Harper Lee, the writer of To Kill a Mockingbird, once put it like this. She said, you can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. And they're still kin to you, no matter whether you acknowledge them or not. And it makes you look downright silly when you don't. So I acknowledge you as part of the Jeffords family this morning. The Bible might say it, you can't choose your friends, but God chooses your family. And he certainly did the choosing to bring us here among you. And I hope you understand that. It's called a calling. We didn't pursue it. We didn't go after it. We didn't ask for it. But God had a calling for us. And what does that mean? What does that mean for all of us today that we had a calling here? Well, it means that this is the first sermon of many you will hear. So if it's awful, please know it'll get better. <laughs> but it also means that we are committed. We're committed to you. We're called by God. We're submitted to Jesus Christ to go wherever that may take us in the years to come. And we're tired. We're tired of wrestling with angels by the river Jabbok, by the Stono River, or the Waccamaw River. Whatever river we've been wrestling with, our wrestling days are over. We are now committed to moving forward for Jesus, to pushing the kingdom forward for Jesus, to acknowledging the risen Lord in our midst, and to praising and worshiping his name amongst you. And we are so very blessed. We're blessed because this is such a desirable church in a desirable town like Somerville. It has grown and matured so much since I used to live here. I don't know if you knew that, but when I was 9, 10, and 11, I lived here. I was part of the first class of Newington Elementary School ever to be at that school. Since then, she's grown. And her high schools are great, and my sons will appreciate that. Her flowers, exquisite. Her people are wonderful, and her sweet tea is to die for. <laughs> Who could ask for anything more? But it's really you people that made us so blessed since our discernment last November, we've met so many God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled people. And that is really what's blessed our hearts. It just took us 10 months to get here. But we thank you for your cards and your letters, your encouragement. You filled our bellies. You changed my office and painted it. It's so wonderful. You even found a home for our boat. And we're eternally thankful for you, at least for the time being. 
But we also got to remember that it's not just the saints today, this parish family that we're called to. We're called to stand on the shoulders of the saints of old. Men and women who called a vision from God that there should be a godly Anglican church here in Somerville, South Carolina. On the banks of the Stono in 1707. As God moved the mission into Ravenel, South Carolina, a little bit later, finally settling in to put its roots down in Somerville in 1824, God laid a foundation for us, the saints today, so that we can build upon that foundation. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in 12.1. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, in our generation, cast aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hear what he says. Hear what he says. The saints of the old have laid a foundation in Jesus Christ. Men and women faithfully following Jesus here in this town. And now we're called to take the baton, to run for Jesus, the race of endurance, all the way through the finish line, straining forward with every bit of energy we have for the gospel of Jesus Christ so that it may be proclaimed as light in a darkened and sinful world. Will you run with me? Will you run with me? Will you join with me? Will you run side by side as the redeemed, elect people of God in this church? History can teach us many wonderful things. Two things that it teaches us as we look back on St. Paul's history is one, this church was going on a long time before any of us got here, and it'll be going on a long time after all of us are in pine boxes, unless Jesus comes again, right? Second thing it teaches us through its long history is that this is not my church. I may be your rector, but this is not my church. It's not your church, and you may have been here a lot longer than I am now or ever will be, but this is not your church. This is not the church of Philip Gadsden, that wonderful rector that was here for over 40 years throughout the Civil War, who faithfully served this parish. This is not his church. This is Jesus' church. Don't ever forget that. We all work for the same guy, the Jewish carpenter, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We'll put him first. We'll strain toward his prides, not our own. So what are your expectations of the new rector? Everybody has expectations, right? Some of us, you, you might remember Mike Lumpkin very fondly, and you should. For 19 plus years, he served this church valiantly, uh, courageously, faithfully. So some of you may want your next rector to be like Mike. You may. The, buildings that, the building that we're in right now were built under his leadership. What a blessing. The debt that you encumbered through the generosity of you guys and the leadership of Mike, you paid that down in record-setting time. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to Mike. This church was led through some of the most tumultuous times that this diocese and the National Church have ever been through under Mike Lumpkin. Thanks be to God and thanks be to Mike. Mike was a gospel man. Today we should give thanks for him. And maybe, you know, in my prayer life, I'm like, God, what would you have me be as the next rector? Who would you have me be? And, and that, that motto, that ad campaign from the 1990s kept coming up, and it said, well, maybe you should be like Mike. <laughs> and some of you would love for me to be like Mike. I can't jump like that guy, but 
You know, some of you want to do the same things we've always done. And for me to be the same guy you've always known. Or really to be like this Mike, really. But I can't. And I won't. We all must accept the fact that I've been called to a unique ministry, to a new season, to a new time, to do things new in Christ for this new season of ministry. And for us to accomplish that goal together as the family of God. Not to say, well, we've never done it that way. Did you know that that's one of the marks of a declining church? When God raises up a godly vision amongst the people and a bunch of people say, well, we've never done it that way. That'll kill you. I can't be like Mike. Others of you did not like Mike, and I understand that. Rectors are under intense scrutiny every single week. It's like being the quarterback of a great football team. It is the second-string quarterback who's always the favorite of the crowd. I don't care if you're Clemson or Carolina or the Citadel. The second guy, as soon as the first guy throws an interception or fails to lead you to a touchdown, the crowd stands up and yells to the coach, Put in the new guy, coach. Put in the new guy, coach. We all do that. It's human nature. Some of you think that I'm the new guy. Some of you think that I might be the Savior, that I might be the Messiah to lead you to a promised land that Mike could not lead you to. Well, in, our, in my reading of the Scriptures, the last guy God called to be a Messiah to lead people was a guy named Jesus, and he died on a cross in shameful humiliation, excruciating torture, and unimaginable pain. And I don't want to go there. I'm just, I'm being quite frank with you. I'm not going to die for you. And I'm not your Messiah. So I'm not Mike, and I'm not Jesus. Don't expect me to be either one. And I might not even fit your mold as rector. I mean, when I went to St. Helena's, fresh out of Duke and Anglican Studies at Virginia Theological, I had a guy come up to me who said, our associate rectors do not drive pickup trucks, which I do. He said, they drive BMWs. And I said, well, the moment you want to give me a BMW, I'll drive a BMW. Until then, I'll drive a pickup truck. Now, seriously, I'm just a regular guy who loves Jesus. And I want you to love Jesus more and more and more each day. I love to read, as all of our clergy do. But I also like to fish and hunt and watch sports. I sometimes pray my prayers while fishing for redfish. And I sometimes meditate on the Word of God from a deer stand. That's just who I am. I hope you'll accept me. So who's the new guy? I'm not Mike, and I'm not Jesus. I'm a sinner, and I'm broken, and I'm depraved, and I'm hobbled by all the circumstances of my life just as you are. And I stand in the shoes of a great Anglican named John Newton, who was a slave trader and an absolutely depraved individual before he met Jesus and became an Anglican priest. And he wrote one of the greatest church hymns called Amazing Grace. And one of his friends, William J., was at his bedside and recorded some of his last words. And they were these. Here's what the priest said. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things still. I'm a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Please remember that throughout my tenure here. I can't save you. Only Jesus can do that. But I will, to the best of my ability and with all of my passion, point you to the one who saves, and we will do everything in this church according to his foundation 
in Christ, for Christ, by Christ, and with Christ. So the three pillars that we'll build the church in our day, in our age upon are these. We shall be a church that is biblically minded and Christ-centered and Holy Spirit-driven. Now what does that mean? Every church thinks that it's biblically minded. Well, it means, and I didn't bring a Bible up here with me, (laughs) so forgive me. But it means that the Bible is the word that God spoke Okay, he is the author of the Bible. I know there are over 40 authors, human authors, over 1,500 years of 66 books, but God inspired every one of them and spoke through these men of old, through these authors. 2 Timothy 3.16 said that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. That Greek word, theo, meaning God, Nustos, meaning spirit breathed. God breathed into these men the very words that he would have for us today. God wrote the Bible. We didn't. And we can't change it. So we'll stand under it. Second Peter says in 1.16, says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths among you. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses to all of his majesty. Other words, Peter's saying, the stuff that we've written down for you, we didn't make it up. We didn't devise it. It's not clever, the thoughts of men. This is what we witnessed, what we saw God doing amongst us. And Jesus said, unless you're a church built on that in Matthew 4, 4, then you're in trouble. Because he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can I get an amen on that? That's how Christians do life. That's how the church does life. Every healthy church does life that way. In Ezekiel 3, 1, he's calling the prophet to do a mighty work, to say some difficult things to his congregation. He said, but before you go, Ezekiel, son of man, eat what's before you. Eat what's before you. He said, eat this scroll, then go and talk to your people. Okay? Eat this scroll. I promise you that every preacher that stands in this pulpit And every teacher that teaches on this campus will be eating the scroll, the Word of God, before they deliver it to you. And I expect every leader in this church to be someone who, in the Book of Common Prayer, says, will read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Word, the scrolls of God, before leading the church anywhere. Everything that we do will be by the Word of God. Every decision we make will be either directly from the Word or will be inferred by the Word, but we'll do our best to be godly, biblically-minded people. Secondly, we'll be Christ-centered. And I'll I'll try and finish up here quickly, but Christ-centered means that all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is centered on Jesus. If you don't go to the Bible with that understanding, you're going to be lost. Okay, so we need to get you there. Because in Genesis, when it says that God, the Father, created everything, he spoke it into being, let there be light, he said, he is speaking it through his divine Son, the Jesus that we know as the Messiah. John picks that up in the New Testament. And he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God was speaking through Jesus in Genesis, all the way to Revelation. In Genesis 3.15, we get the first hint of the good news People say that this is the proto-evangelium or the first good news of the Bible. 
right after Adam and Eve had fallen. In Genesis 3.15, it talks about Jesus. It says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman, Mary, the offspring of God. And between your offspring, the author of evil, and her offspring, the author of salvation, Jesus, and look at the last line, and you, Satan, will bruise his heel. Where does Satan bruise Jesus' heel? On the cross. But that's just a bruise. That wasn't a death wound. Jesus rose on the third day victorious from the dead. He could not take Jesus down. But look at the other verse. And you, Jesus, the offspring, shall bruise his head. That, my friends, is a coup de grace. That is a death wound. Jesus, 3.15 in Genesis, is already the victory he is the majesty. He is the Savior from Genesis to Revelation, the entire plan of salvation. Somebody once described it as God planting an acorn in Genesis 3.15 and it growing into a mighty oak tree of salvation throughout Revelation through the other 65 books. So as one of my favorite Anglican authors, the evangelical preacher Charles Simeon once put it, that first 3.15 is the sum and summary of the entire Bible. It's all about Jesus. And here at this church, we're going to be all about Jesus. All about Jesus. The last thing, Holy Spirit driven. If you'll remember those apostles, they had the law and the prophets. Jesus would call that his Bible. They knew it well. They walked with Jesus for three years as apostles, learning at the feet of Jesus. They were biblically minded. They were Christ-centered. But what happened after Jesus died? They all packed it in. They went back home to their nets and their families and their wives and their fishing villages and wherever else. Jesus is dead. It was, good. It was a good run while it lasted. Let's go back to life as we knew it once. That's what they said until the day of Pentecost, until the Holy Spirit came. That same Peter who stood and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, even to your death. The same guy was denying the Lord three times before the cock crowed in the morning. But it's that same Peter who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached boldly to thousands of people in the temple courts. So many people that some of those people had to be the same people that just put Jesus to death 50 days earlier. And he preached to them boldly, and 3,000 souls were saved. You know, I know a lot of people who are Christ-centered. They love Jesus. And, and they're, they're biblically minded. They know some scripture. But I know that when life hits them hard, when the kids go back to school, when they get busy with their jobs, it's hard to keep the energy going. Only the Holy Spirit can empower the church to be the church and direct and guide the church to where the church needs to be. If you've ever wanted to do good for God but ran out of energy, you need to go to the Spirit. We've got to be Spirit-driven. So, here's the deal. We are going to be a church on those three pillars. Biblically-minded, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-driven. Not to our glory, but to His. And we're going to be the family of God, adopted by God's and sons and daughters through the precious blood of the Lamb Jesus, made one family in Him who died, again, died and rose again in victory for us. Genesis 3.15, the fulfillment. And now I'm your shepherd, and I'll remind you, I am not the good shepherd. But I know where he lives, and I know where he is, and I can take you to him. And together with me, I call upon you to listen to his voice. 
Above all the cacophony of sounds of this death-dealing, darkened culture that they whisper in your ears every day, we will listen to the words of the Good Shepherd. And he will lead us to green pastures, and he'll take us beside still waters, and he'll refresh our souls. To the glory of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and confess our faith as a <clears throat> biblically minded Christ, Christ what was it? centered, yes, he's the center, thank you. <laughs> biblically minded, Christ centered, and Holy Spirit driven faith uh, church. We will use um, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one holy Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, not in not name, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We'll move now into a time of prayer. Um, and I invite you to, as I pray for a category, whether it's the, the church or the community um, or, um, or our brothers and sisters around the world, um, if the Lord puts something on your heart, um, offer it up to the Lord. You can do it silently, but you can certainly do it out loud as well. It will be a, a, a community that prays together um, here standing at the throne room of God. And so Lord, we thank you that you've given us the grace to come before you. And we thank you, Lord, that even in our weakness, your son Jesus is sitting at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. And so now we humbly offer these prayers up to you through him. Lord, we pray for your church, for brothers and sisters around the world, and especially those who are being persecuted for their faith, many of whom are dying because they believe and confess that. I pray, Lord, that they would be a witness to your grace and mercy, even in the most trying circumstances. We pray, Lord, for your church here in South Carolina, and especially the Diocese of South Carolina. We pray for our Bishop Mark and his wife Allison as they continue on their sabbatical. We pray, Lord, for this church here in Somerville, for St. Paul's, for all of the faithful disciples here, Lord. I pray you would continue to shape us and make us into a gospel people proclaiming grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord, for 
our rector, Tripp, and his family. We pray for him, and we pray for the other clergy of this church, Tyler and John and um, Gary, our church planner. We pray for the leadership of this church, vestry and staff, and all of the faithful disciples who are proclaiming Jesus here in Somerville. I invite you now, congregation, to offer up your prayers for the church. We pray for our nation and our community, for all of our elected officials, our President Barack, our Governor Nikki, um, members of the State House and the Senate, and the representatives. And we pray, Lord, for um, this town, that we would be a gospel witness to Somerville. And we pray, Lord, for our men and women in the armed services and their families. Pray, Lord, that you give them faith and hope that can only come from your son, Jesus. I invite you, church, to pray for this community and the nation. Lord, we pray for our friends and family who are sick. I pray that your Holy Spirit would um, touch them with his healing power. Pray especially for Jen Wyckoff as she recovers from surgery. Church, if there's anybody on your hearts or minds who is sick, you may offer them now to the Lord. Lord, we come before you again um, on this Sunday morning as a humble and sinful people. Um, we've done things we shouldn't have done. We haven't done things we should have done. And we've certainly not loved our neighbors as much as we have loved ourselves. Let's take a moment of silence and invite the Holy Spirit to come and convict us of our sins. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us. 
that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Tripp, I'm going to put you on the spot. Would you like to absolve your flock? All fear. <laughs> Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. Amen. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And also with you.